Well, in what do you place your confidence? Where is your hope found? Back in 1912, 2,200 people placed their confidence in man's ingenuity, industry, and progress. I'm talking, of course, about the Titanic. And I know you all know the story of the unsinkable ship, so I don't have to really repeat it here. But when the Titanic struck the iceberg on its maiden voyage, the people on board were so convinced that the ship could not sink that they refused to board the lifeboats when the the captain gave order to abandon ship. They just carried on. They didn't believe it. They had so placed their confidence in this unsinkable ship that they carried on business as usual. Now, I guess the the good side of it is that they had this this peace and this calm about them as they were aboard a sinking vessel. I guess that's good. They weren't panicking. They they carried on with their evening, and and that's actually what great confidence gives you. It gives you peace and joy in the midst of serious trouble. But, of course, theirs was a false security, a false joy brought on by a, a false confidence. As the object of their confidence, the Titanic itself, was in the process of sinking. And it wasn't long before their peace and joy turned into terror and dread. Most of the few lifeboats departed only half full. And many of those left behind, they would perish largely because of their misplaced confidence. Having confidence in life, like I said, can be a great thing. It does give you peace and joy to weather life's storms. But that is unless your confidence is misplaced. The object of your confidence is what matters, and you, you don't want to be one of those left out to dry when your confidence proves false. Your hope proves false. And you can see how this is very much true spiritually. Spiritual confidence is very important to have. You should know that your place in heaven is secured, and you should have that confidence, which leads you to a peace and a joy in life to, to weather any storms that may come. It's interesting is that most people I talk to, they seem to have that confidence, They believe that when they die, that they're going to go to heaven. And that confidence allows them to lead life with a certain peace, no matter what happens. But the problem is that for many, their confidence is misplaced as they're trusting in themselves. What is the object of their confidence to stand before God? It is themselves, their own goodness. They're good people. They do good things. They're law-abiding. They're better than most. So surely God would accept someone like them, right? See, they've con- convinced themselves that they're on, a, they're on board an unsinkable ship, that they'll never go down, that they'll safely make it to heaven's shores because of their own goodness. In reality, though, they've already struck the iceberg, and they're in the process of sinking. It's just a matter of time before they perish, but their confidence in self has led them to ignore the lifeboats by which they might be saved. And so theirs is a false peace. And they'll come to realize it eventually as they plunge into the icy water. But then it's too late. They'll stand before a God who's a a perfectly just judge, before whom they'll learn there's there's no such thing as a good person. Where we've all sinned, we've all, all fallen short. Your own goodness can't deliver you before God. And so such is confidence in self to save you. You may feel safe and secure now, but if your confidence is in self, it's a misplaced confidence and it will result in a rude awakening. Instead, though, there's only one true source 
of hope. There's only one solid ground of confidence, and that's Christ, Christ Jesus alone. He, he's the lifeboat. He can save you if you go to him, for Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. He can cleanse you of all your guilt and forgive you your sins. In addition, he can give you his own perfect righteousness that you might be accepted into heaven by God. And so Christ is the only real hope you have of not going down with the ship. You want to talk about an unsinkable ship, forget the Titanic, try Noah's Ark. And Christ, he's, he's like the Ark. A flood of judgment is coming and he can, he can save you, he can give you refuge. But you must enter in by faith. In Noah's day, the whole world thought he was mad and they refused to enter in and be saved. And likewise today, the world thinks we're mad for giving up our lives to follow Christ, but it's, it's the only way. This is what faith means, where you, you abandon self, your old self, that the sinking ship, and instead you, you turn to Christ, you, you fall on Christ. He becomes your captain, your, your Lord, where you live under him, you live for him. So have you done this? Have you placed your confidence in Christ alone? You can't count on things or others or self to deliver you before God's just judgment. But only in Christ is that hope found. So make him your confidence. He doesn't fail. And as you do so, you'll find a real peace and joy in life, a lasting, meaningful, substantial peace and joy that will truly allow you to weather life's storms, such as confidence in Christ. And by way of preview, this is the message we're going to discover over and over in Philippians chapter 3. So why don't you grab your Bibles now and open them to Philippians chapter 3. This is, by, by way of chapter, this is the halfway point now in the book of Philippians. There's still a lot more to come, though, here, especially in chapter 3, which really is one of the richest chapters, I think, in the Bible. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives some of the clearest teaching on the necessity of being righteous before God. Did you know that? Did you know that to get to heaven, you have to be righteous? Not just forgiven, you have to be righteous. And not just righteous, perfectly righteous to enter heaven. The problem, however, is that none of us are perfectly righteous, not even close. Some people, though, especially religious people, delude themselves into thinking they can be righteous before God. If they just do enough things, enough good things, religious deeds, they can become righteous. But no, you can't. They just don't get that perfect righteousness. It's an impossible and unattainable standard on purpose. And so theirs is a misplaced confidence. Instead, though, again, the good news is that the perfect righteousness we need, it's available. It's available for free as a gift by God's grace, which comes through through your faith in Christ. That's how you receive the gift of perfect righteousness in Christ. That's the only way. Only in Christ can you be made perfectly righteous that you can be accepted by God. And this really is, without exaggeration, one of the most important truths of the Bible. 
that our righteousness or our right standing before God comes not by way of our effort, our performance, our deeds, our works, but it comes simply by God's own grace through faith in Christ. And in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see this truth really developed and, and explained in such a helpful way. And this morning, though, we really get our first dose of it, really just by way of introduction, in the first three verses, our passage for today, Philippians 3, 1 through 3, easing our way into all that he's going to say in this third chapter. So why don't we just start now by reading the passage, Philippians 3, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Philippians 3, 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We'll stop there for for now. It's actually a very important passage. It's a transition passage. It's really setting up what's to come in many ways in the rest of the chapter. But Paul starts here a contrast that will continue throughout the chapter between the true and the false. True believer, the false believer. True circumcision, false circumcision. Those with confidence in self, those with confidence in Christ. And now these three verses for today, you know, to be honest, they don't really lend themselves to, to some tidy three-point outline. But we're just going to go through a little passage, make our way through, and just be introduced to the chapter and to the, the contrast that still exists today between these two people with two confidences, confidence in self versus confidence in Christ. Now, just to give you a little outline to follow along with your thoughts, we'll, we'll start with number one, the reminder. That's what he's doing in verse one. He's giving a reminder. Look again at verse one. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again, it's no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you. Now, Paul, he starts off chapter three by saying, finally, my brethren, Kind of gives you the impression that he's going to like conclude the letter right here, but it's only like halfway. He's got a lot more to say. So maybe you're thinking Paul's like one of those typical preachers who says he's concluding his message and then goes for another 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's just something we do. But no, actually the word here, the Greek word, it's an idiom that literally means as for the rest. Just signaling a transition where now he's going to devote his attention to some other things. Recall again, I've said many times, why Philippians was written. On one hand, Paul writes to address many concerns that the Philippian church had. They were concerned about Paul, his well-being, the gospel progress there as he was imprisoned in Rome. They also were concerned about their guy, Epaphroditus, who they had sent. He had gotten sick, wanted to hear what's going on with him. So part of the reason Paul writes is to address their concerns and he, he largely covered that in the first two chapters. We've seen all that. But at the same time, Paul has some concerns of his own. And he wants to address those now. He, he's mentioned them. He's interspersed his concerns in the first two chapters. We've seen that. But really, chapters 3 and 4, he really starts to tackle more head-on the concerns he has about them and about the church. 
So that, that gets us into chapter 3. More specifically, Paul has some internal concerns and external concerns about stuff going on in the Philippian church. Internally, he's concerned about the, the division, the strife he's hearing, and that, that the cracks are forming their foundation. He doesn't want that to happen, so he'll, he'll tackle their internal strife head on in chapter 4. That's really what chapter 4 is about. But here in chapter 3, it's really about the, these external concerns. Namely, they've got some external opponents outside the church who are both persecuting them and spreading error. And really in chapter 3, he tackles that, addressing this concern about those outside. And so it's not surprising to see Paul begin this transition by saying, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And with this, Paul, he's returning to the overall theme in Philippians, which is joy, especially joy in the Lord. This joy is the primary attitude they need to have in response to their trials, both internal and external. And when trouble comes in life, and it will, they need to respond with peace and hope and joy in the Lord that they might stand firm. Like James 1, 2 says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Just so you know, this is not talking about putting on a plastic smile and faking happiness when bad things happen. It's not what this joy in the Lord means. There's a fallen world. Bad things happen. We're not supposed to ignore it or try and smile our way through it. Christians can grieve and be sad. Back in chapter 2, Paul mentioned if Epaphroditus had died, he would have sorrow upon sorrow. It's not wrong to grieve in tragedy. The difference, though, is that we don't lose our joy, which is not simple happiness, but you could say it's that settled disposition of the soul. It's where you can say that no matter what happens, it is well with my soul. It's still well with my soul. It may not be well with your finances. You may be broke. You may lost your job, you may be facing foreclosure. You're not supposed to be happy about that or, or, be rejoy- or glad that you lost everything, per se. It may not be well with your health. You may be facing a prolonged sickness that's not going away. There's nothing, nothing happy about that. But this joy is different where no matter what happens in life, you can still say, it is well with my soul. And that's because you've placed your confidence, your hope, not in your finances, not in your health. Those are all going to go down eventually. But you've placed your confidence in Christ. Your hope is in Christ. And the eternal life he gives, which cannot be taken away. And that's where a real peace and joy comes from. I'm sure many of you already know the story. Behind the famous hymn I just mentioned, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio G. Spafford wrote that after suffering intense tragedy. Speaking of another Atlantic crossing, kind of fitting the theme this morning with the Titanic, but 40 years before the Titanic. Spafford's wife and four daughters were traveling from Chicago to Europe for vacation. He was going to join them in a few days on another ocean liner. But on November 21st, 1873, their ship collided with another vessel and sank. And most the 313 passengers perished, including all four 
of his daughters. But his wife survived, and she was later found floating on a piece of wreckage. Spafford boarded the next available liner to go uh, meet with his grieving wife. They had taken her to Wales. Four days into the journey, the captain called Spafford up to the bridge, and he told him that they were now over generally the place where his children went down. And according to Spafford's daughter, who was born later, this is when he penned the lyrics to that hymn. Which you know how it goes. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll. Why do you think he said that? Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. This is the, that's the joy in the Lord we're talking about. Spafford lost his greatest earthly treasure, his four children. But even still, he didn't lose the Lord. He knew his children were with the Lord, so he found reason enough to rejoice. Remember, it's not just joy we're talking about. It's joy in the Lord. And this is the joy that we need. The sphere of this joy is Christ. Christ produces the ultimate source of joy, which is eternal life. Knowing your sins have been forgiven. You've been spared from the ocean of God's wrath. You've been, you've been reconciled to God forever, and he will safely deliver you into his eternal kingdom. That's enough to give you this settled disposition of peace and joy, no matter what happens, because this whole world is falling and, and fleeing and, and going down. But you know that no matter what happens, you are eternally blessed and secure in Christ, even if you lose your loved ones, Even if you lose your life, you're still safe in his arms. That is a much deeper joy that the world cannot touch. And that leads to the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension and guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul will say later in chapter 4. So rejoice in the Lord always. The Philippians needed that reminder in this epistle of joy, and so do we. We need that reminder all the time to take joy in the Lord. All other confidences will sink. That the only solid rock on which we stand is Christ. So plant yourself on him. And even in the tempest of life, you'll have peace and joy. Now, speaking of reminders, Paul says next, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard. For you. What Paul's about to tell them here in chapter 3, he's told them before in his previous visits, he told them to watch out for error and opponents outside the church. But they need to be reminded, and so do we, for we're so prone to forget. You recall the Athenians in Paul's day, they prided themselves on always wanting to hear something new. They didn't want to hear the same old truth over and over again. It's just kind of boring. They wanted something new, something novel, something they had never heard before. And a lot of people, they're like that today. I mean, they've heard the same old Bible stories so many times. They're tired of that. They want something new, something fresh, something innovative. The problem, of course, is that the truth of the Bible doesn't change. So if you're going to be new, there's a good chance you're going to be wrong. And more than a few people have fallen into error over this desire for novelty. 
Instead, though, God's people don't actually need anything new. The counsel of God's word is complete. The Bible is everything you need for life and godliness. And that's true. You read the Bible a few times, you get most of the head knowledge you need. But we're also after heart knowledge, which, which is where the truth of God's word convicts us, guides us, teaches us every day, instructing us, giving us wisdom for daily life. That's a daily need, this heart knowledge, which is why the Bible is our daily bread. And so frequent reminders are needed. And Paul calls them here a safeguard. Now, outside the church here, part of the sidewalk has buckled because of a tree root. So the city came along and they didn't fix it, but they did spray paint it yellow. Why? Well, it's, it's a safeguard pointing out there's, there's potential danger. Well, Paul here, he's about to highlight some truths pointing out to the Philippians. Here, here's some potential danger. So watch out. This is a safeguard. Earlier, he told them not to be alarmed by their opponents. Now he's going to tell them how to identify their opponents. And this brings us to number two, the contrast. Number two, the contrast. In verse two, Paul jumps right in. And he points out to the Philippians the real source of danger coming from these false believers, false teachers. And this contrast between confidence in self, verse 2, confidence in Christ, verse 3. But let's start with this threefold description of those with confidence in self in verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now, at first glance, you might think these are some harsh words, and you'd be right. But no apology is needed because when you're dealing with false teachers, a certain bluntness is needed. You know, if, if you see a rattlesnake slithering in the grass right behind your child, it would be an appropriate time to yell at them and say, well, watch out, you know, move, move away, danger. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's pointing out wolves to the flock. And telling them to, to watch out. And by the way, John the Baptist did the same thing. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Jesus was even harsher. He called the Pharisees serpents, hypocrites, fools, blind guides, and sons of hell. But if you think this is harsh, you're right. Like I said, with false teachers, you have to call them for, for what they are. Danger. Serpents. But understand this is part of the job of a shepherd, not only to feed the flock, but to guard the flock and point out the wolves. Shepherds especially need to be on the alert. But you know what? All people need to be on the alert for themselves. And that's what Paul's intention is here. He's trying to get your attention. You need to beware. Notice the threefold repetition of beware. Beware the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware the false circumcision you have to look out for such people now you're wondering who are these people who are we talking about here and from the terms paul uses it's crystal clear who these people are these were the judaizers I'm sure you remember them or hear, heard of them this is a group of jewish christians who are still rooted in the traditions of the scribes and pharisees they came to accept jesus as the jewish messiah but they retained their legalism. So for them, 
salvation was not by faith alone, but faith plus works. Faith plus keeping the law of Moses. So to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus, sure, but you also you have to keep the law of Moses, like the Sabbath, the dietary restrictions, rituals like circumcision. Remember, all the first Christians were Jewish, but then later Gentiles came to believe in Jesus, entered the church, it gave the Jews a hard time at first to, to think about that. The Judaizers, though, took it a step further. They went so far as to teach that, you know, all you Gentiles, you want to join us in this church of Jesus? Well, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep the law and be circumcised. But, see, this is a problem because the true gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, apart from the works of the law. In fact, the harshest words in Scripture are reserved for those who adulterate this gospel. Paul himself said that if anyone, even an angel, preached a different gospel, he is accursed or or damned. So when you change faith alone into faith plus works, you now have a different gospel. A gospel that cannot save, that can only condemn. This is, this is serious, and this is largely what we'll learn throughout chapter 3. But here, this is why Paul calls them the false circumcision. This is one of the biggest dividing issues at the time. You recall how circumcision was given by God to Abraham as a sign. It was an outward sign of an inward change. Circumcision was never meant as a means of salvation, but it was given as a physical sign of belonging in God's people. It was a sign, a symbol of cutting away the flesh. Real entrance into God's family, though, has always been by faith. Abraham, he lived 400 years before the law of Moses. But how was he made right before God? How was Abraham justified before God? By works? By circumcision? No, it was just by faith. Just by faith. The promise of blessing in life has always been by faith. But as you know, later Jews, they misunderstood this. And they came to focus entirely on the externals, like keeping the law. Their confidence was not in God through faith, but in self through the flesh. So they essentially thought, you know, like, look, I'm a son of Abraham. I keep the law of Moses. I'm circumcised. I have the outward sign of being in God's people. So I'm, I'm good to go, right? I'm in. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. This is confidence in the flesh. But this is a false confidence. No deed, no ritual can save you. And circumcision was never meant as a means of salvation. Even the Old Testament prophets knew this and were warning Israel. God looks at the heart. And what they really needed to do was circumcise their hearts, which is to say repent of their evil deeds, turn to God with true faith and be forgiven. It's always been that way. It's the only way to be made right with God is by faith and and God's provision alone. Every other hope, every other confidence is a sinking ship. So if you've got a group of people claiming to be God's children, but teaching a, a false 
gospel, a gospel of works. Well, that's a danger. They think they're saving people, but they're really damning people with their false gospel. Jesus himself said this of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 15. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And these Judaizers, they basically were the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees. In the church, so Paul calls them the false circumcision. Really, though, it's a play on words because the word literally means mutilators. He calls them here mutilators. Since they approach God based on the, the outward symbol of circumcision, which itself is empty, but that's their confidence. Their circumcision does them no good. In fact, it becomes no better than the vain mutilations of the pagans who cut themselves to try and please the gods. He's saying that to them, that that's all they are. They're just mutilators. And accordingly, working backward, he calls them evil workers. Because theirs is a false gospel, they make disciples of the worst kind. Those who think they're saved when they're not. There's nothing worse for a person than to be convinced he's saved when in reality he's still on the sinking ship. It's like the Titanic crew. You can yell at them all you want to board the lifeboat, but they still think they're fine. They won't listen to you. And that's the greatest danger. This is high stakes, which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, we're dealing with the doctrine of demons here. And in 2 Corinthians 11.13, these people are false apostles. He calls them deceitful workers. They're like the enemy who comes in and sows tares among the wheat, captivating the weak under the burden of the law. And finally, he calls them dogs. The irony here is that the Jews were known for calling Gentiles dogs in a derogatory manner. You have to realize back then, dogs were not pets. Dogs were filthy, vile scavengers who roamed the trash heaps, who devoured corpses. It's hard for us to get because in America, people spend millions of dollars on their dogs, dressing them up in kind of cute little outfits, letting them sleep in their beds. Would you let a raccoon sleep in your bed? Or how about a rat? That's, now you know how they felt about dogs, okay? That's how they felt about dogs. They were the epitome of an unclean and vile animal. So you get the insult when Jews call Gentiles dogs, filthy, unclean, vile, detestable. In reality, though, the Judaizers were the unclean ones. They were not justified before God. They still had their sins on their hands. And if you follow them, if you fall prey to their false gospel, you will be unclean too. This sounds serious because it is serious. So heed this threefold call to beware those who place their confidence in self. Now coming to verse 3, Paul really builds up the contrast. In contrast to those who put confidence in self, he mentions us, those who put confidence in Christ. Look now at verse 3. He says, we, we are the true circumcision who worship 
in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What is it that sets us apart? What makes Christianity, biblical Christianity, different from all other world religions, movements, even Catholicism? What makes us different? It's that every single world religion and worldview operates off of the same thing, namely confidence in the flesh. Getting right with God is all about your efforts, your deeds, your performance. That's every religion. But Christianity, biblical Christianity, is set apart by itself, alone, by this true circumcision, which simply means salvation is by God's grace. It's a gift by his grace, which comes purely through faith in Christ alone. It is God himself who makes us right with him by grace. And we access that through faith in his son, Christ. Just listen carefully. You don't turn. Just listen carefully to Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Listen to these words. Very similar. Or over there, Paul says that in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. He made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Tell me, what did you do there? What did you do to have your, all of your sins, all of them taken away? Nothing except believe in Christ. And God did everything else by grace. Every religion from the Pharisees and Judaizers of the past to Catholics and legalists of today, they operate off this principle. You've got to pay for your sin debt. Confessions, Hail Marys, penance. You have to do something. Religious deeds, rituals, rites. But that's a false hope. There's no good news there. Because we continually violate God's law. Rather, the good news is found only in in Christ, who paid the debt for us entirely on the cross. There's, there's nothing left for us to pay. He, he said, it is finished. There's nothing left to pay for here. And that's what Christ was doing on the cross, wiping away your transgressions. And as you come to true faith in him, your sins are forgiven. You're raised to new life, a life lived not by the flesh, but by the spirit. And so Paul says here in verse 3, that we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. When you realize what God has done for you in Christ, it produces not, not a vain worship of rituals, but a true worship. God's given you what you need. Righteousness, forgiveness, a new life, a new heart. And now you can worship him truly. And the only way that that's real, meaning from the heart, 
That's all that God cares about. We don't worship God externally. Do you think merely coming to church, singing some songs is worship? I, I can pay someone to do that. It's not worship. It only becomes worship when it comes from your heart. Your heart must be involved. A spirit-driven love for the Lord must be behind all that you do. That transforms anything into worship. And that love is, is produced when you realize by faith all that Jesus did to save you. And this is why we then, verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see it? And this is, this is Paul putting this contrast so purely and perfectly. We are those who glory not in ourselves, but in Christ. This word for glory means to boast, to exalt, to take pride in. Your boast is your hope. So in, in what do you hope? What do you boast? These false believers were characterized by boasting in the law, their, their keeping of the law, their, their circumcision, their self-righteousness. But you know what? Today we mock those who boasted in the Titanic as the unsinkable ship. They were so proud and boastful, yet they were proven wrong, and, and we mock them today as fools. Well, in the same way, all those who boast in the flesh, one day they will be proven false and fools. Jesus taught the same contrast. I'll read again for you, Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And so Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is, what it, this is what it looks like to boast in self or boast in Christ. And those who boast in self, they will receive nothing but condemnation before God. But when, you, when you're like the tax collector, you see your sin and you just humble yourself before God and just ask for mercy. You abandon the ship of self and you, you cling to Christ. Well, God justifies you. By faith. He will make you right, right then and there. And like Paul said in Romans 3, thereafter all such boasting is excluded because we are saved by grace. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's so clear, isn't it? The flesh profits nothing. 
So why would you make yourself your confidence before God? Your ship is sinking, but Christ offers you refuge, deliverance, hope, life. If you would go to him, when will you open your ears and your eyes to see him for who he is and go to him by faith? And if any are here today and you haven't done that, or maybe you're not sure if you've done that, do that now and turn to Christ and talk to us. For those who have, for you this is just a reminder. So be, be reminded, don't forget, like Paul said, hey, we sing it, in Christ alone my hope is found. But do you really live that? Do you live like that's true? I find many Christians at times, they revert back to this existence of trying to please God based on performance. But, but there's no joy in that because we're never good enough. Even as believers, look, we still sin. And so if your relationship with God is based on your performance alone, there's no wonder so many are spiritually depressed. That's what the burden of the law feels like. You're living like you're back under the law. But remember, we're not under the law. We're, we're under grace. Now, don't get me wrong. Behavior matters. Yeah, you're, we're called to holiness, to strive for holiness. And this gospel of grace, it doesn't mean you can just live in sin. In fact, the true believer doesn't want to live in sin anymore because his heart has been changed. But it does mean that even as we still fall short, we remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. You're no longer on the Titanic. We've already been accepted into the ark, not by our effort, not by our deeds, not by our goodness, not by our performance, but simply as a gift, welcome aboard through faith in Christ. So don't let go of that faith. And God knew who he was letting in, unworthy sinners, dogs. Yet that's what grace is, undeserved favor. So remember these things. These are old truths. There's nothing new here. It's been the same message for 2,000 years. But remember, as it refreshes our joy, our joy which is found in the object of our confidence, which is Christ and Christ alone. Knowing that God's smile never departs from those who are in Christ Jesus. Knowing that you're safe in the ark. In fact, it makes you want to strive against sin all the more. And it gives you joy. And when the storms of life come, that joy is so important. It's part of our witness. It's part of our worship. Well, there's a lot more, a lot more to come and say here in chapter 3 and beyond. It's really just setting the stage. But just this is enough for this morning for you to even heed this reminder to make your confidence Christ and not your flesh. Boasting is excluded. All boasting in self, that is. We, we still boast, actually. But now we are those who glory in Christ Jesus, and boast in the Lord. Remember this, live this, like Paul said in Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. For our mighty Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning 
of grace and the gift of grace you have given to us. Lord, you knew who you were dealing with. You knew that apart from your grace, none could be saved. We all deserve to go down with the ship for we are sinners who have only violated your law and fall so far short. And you'd be just to to let us go. Yet, Lord, in, in your supreme love, you sent Christ to die on the cross, pay for our sins in our place, and now to offer us refuge like the ark, that all who enter in can be saved. But they must come alone. They cannot bring anything. They cannot bring works or goodness or effort or confidence in self. They must enter alone. But that is enough. Pray for any, Lord, who who have not done so, that you this morning open their eyes, convict them, and draw them to Christ, that they would enter in by that pure faith. And for the, for the rest, we need these reminders. This is nothing new, Lord. This is, this is the same message. Even every Sunday we hear stuff like this. But we need this to remind us of Christ, our only hope, who then becomes our, our source of joy. But that, that's a real joy. That's a joy we need. There's no joy in health or finances, or relationships. None that lasts. It's a fallen world. But Christ is our solid rock on which we stand. May we be reminded and live that and worship you in joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.